Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy? I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. This week we're discussing Chapter 4 of Ship of Magic, Divi Town. And we're back with Kenneth. Yeah, finally away from Ronica. <laughs> <laughs> finally. Yeah, I guess it was three weeks for us, but yeah. <laughs> in between recordings. Anyway, we get uh, Kenneth docking at Divi Town. He's pulling up his ship after, you know, the various pirating adventures he had that we missed out on and the latest trip to Other Island. And he is remarking upon the stench of Divi Town at the beginning here. Yeah, so something about Kenneth is that he has really high standards for hygiene and order, uh, which we'll get into a little bit more later, but especially bad scents seem to stick out to him more than everybody else. He is starting this chapter by dabbing lemon scented oil on his mustache to try to be able to smell anything but the putrid stench of Divi town. Yes. Uh, particularly the landscape kind of provides that unfortunate stench. It is very hidden, which is a boon to the pirates in that it's at the foot or accessible only by you know one of the many rivers that are along this island and you have to navigate very well and know what you're doing to get there but it is very still water because it's so inland and they dump all of their waste and everything you know all over the place and in the water so on a hot day it smells to high heaven and Kenneth mentions that to everybody else it is the sweet smell of home, and it means that they're going to get some of their, their share of loot and some time of rest and relaxation and whatever else they might want to do. But to Canada, it just smells really bad. Right. He also mentions that in the winters, when it rains a lot, it does temporarily fix the stench of the area. It like actually cleans out the area. However, it doesn't last for very long, and by the middle of summer, it's not a place that you would really want to be smelling it's about as appealing as a chamber pot left out in the sun yes he also goes on to explain that to dock there for more than a few days would be to invite rot on your ship hull and also that there's only a couple you know wells to drink out of that wouldn't give you the flux or fever or you know anything bad and kenneth's remarking what a terrible place this is, and yet he can look down on his crew and everyone is extremely happy to be home. Right. This is another layer of Kenneth kind of seeing himself himself as above others. It stems also from the view that his subordinates enjoy living in this filth. They don't mind the scent, and he's better than that. It just gives a sense of like entitlement, I guess. I don't know if that's quite the right word, but he is very prim and proper. (laughs) This is not his favorite place, which to be fair, doesn't sound like a place I would want to be staying for very long if it smelled like that. So, (laughs) but it is his goal to be the king of this place. That is true. Yes. And he also makes, uh, thinking of, you know, his crew working hard for this and how beneath them they are. He's also thinking that, you know, this time tomorrow or in a couple days, all of their hard-won loot would be gone. No one really saves anything here. And he's kind of lamenting on their economic choices as well. 
Aye, and before the sunup tomorrow, most of their hard-won loot would have passed into the hands of the soft innkeepers and the whoremasters and merchants of Divvy Town. Kennet shook his head pityingly and dabbed once more at his mustache with a lemon-scented handkerchief. But this time, there is going to be a little bit more talk, he's hoping. This time, his plan is to give his crew more share to pad their pockets a little bit more, make them feel like he's a super generous person. He's also planning on only taking two shares for himself, which implies that he normally takes well more than two. He is the captain. And I'm sure that is probably standard practice. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I don't know the economy of pirates, but (laughs) he's only taking a small amount because he is wanting to make sure this time for sure The pockets are heavy and he's doing this because he's hoping it number one makes his crew a lot happier so they can remember that with Kenneth, they are successful. Kenneth gets them a lot of goods and money. And number two, it'll get the people talking about how Kenneth has a ton of luck and uh, Kenneth is bringing all this influx of gold and product into Divi Town and maybe they would be more willing to follow him as a leader, mm-hmm. knowing that he is known for giving wealth to others. Yeah, with with his crew always coming in more wealthy, along with the rumors of like, hey, he was foretold to become the king and be the leader and everything yes. like this by other island. Those kind of go hand in hand. It's two separate things of like, oh, maybe it would be good to have Kenneth lead us and everyone could be as rich as his crew is. Right. So... As always, Kenneth is scheming and trying to think ahead and plan for how other people will react. This is all an act and all, all a show trying to better better aid himself in his plot to become king. And we get a little bit more in-depth knowledge of who Sorcor is. We have a conversation between Kenneth and his first mate, Sorcor. And it's one that Kenneth in his head says that they have pretty much every time they pull into Divi Town. Kenneth points out a little bit of bluff over there and he's like, oh, wouldn't it be great to have a guard tower there with, you know, some weapons so we can, you know, warn Divi Town of dangers coming in and defend itself all in one place. And Sorkor bit his lip, but otherwise contained himself. Every time they put into port here, Kenneth made this same proposal to him. Each time, the seasoned mate answered the same. Could there be found enough stone in this bog? A tower might be built, and rocks hauled up to throw. I suppose it might be done, sir. But who would pay for it, and who would oversee it? Divi Town would never stop quarreling long enough to build and man such a defense. If Divi Town had a strong enough ruler, he could accomplish it. It would be only one of many things he could accomplish. Sorcor glanced cautiously at his captain. This was new territory for their discussion. Divi Town is a town of free men. We have no ruler. That is true, Kenneth agreed. Experimentally, he added, and that is why we are ruled instead by the greed of merchants and whoremasters. Look about you. We risk our lives for our gains, every sailor of us. Yet by the time we weigh anchor again, where will our gold be? Not in our own pockets. And what will a man have to show for it? Not but an aching head, unless he has the ill luck to catch the crabs in a bagnio as well. The more a man has to spend in Divi Town, why then the more the beer or the bread or the women cost. But you are right. What Divi Town needs is not a ruler, but a leader. 
a man who can stir men to rule themselves, who can waken them so that they open their eyes and see what they could have. Kennet let his gaze move back out to the men who bowed their backs to the oars as the ship's boats towed the Marietta into dock. Nothing in his relaxed stance could indicate to Sorcor that this was a carefully rehearsed speech. Kennet thought well of his first mate. He was not only a good seaman, but an intelligent man despite his limited education. If Kennet could sway him with his words, then perhaps others would begin to listen as well. I'll stop there really quickly, but we have uh, Kennet's thoughts from his own mind that Sorcor is a very intelligent man, which we do see as the stories progress. He does have his own thoughts and, and is capable of you know, coming to conclusion and critical thinking and, right. and everything like that. And Kenneth holds him in high regard and, and high esteem. So he's practicing his speech or trying to convince Sorkor first because he's going to be one of the toughest hurdles to overcome to say that, yes, these people who want to be free need a leader. Right. No, and it is really interesting because Sorkor as far as we can tell, is intelligent. And I think there are other characters that Kenneth come in contact with that he doesn't give the credit of being intelligent with, even though we may see bits of other people also having brains. <laughs> but Kenneth really does respect Sorcor in a way. And I think that's really interesting. And their relationship in general is such an interesting thing because there is a lot of respect from Sorcor's side. And I mean, obviously it's mutual because Kenneth is praising him, which he doesn't do to anyone. <laughs> but yeah, I just find it really interesting how they interact with each other and how he does. He, Sorkor seems to be the only person in Kenneth's life that is willing to tell him no or to talk about why his ideas are bad. And that's a really important person to have. And usually not straight up, but no. like as a first mate to a captain. Right. Still, you know, very There's, respectful, <laughs> yes. but is willing to say, hey, maybe... We should do this instead. <laughs> right. No, but I think that is an important person. And I think that is an amazing trait that Sorkor has because Kenneth seems like the kind of person who wouldn't let somebody stay around him if they told him no ever. But it's also good that like Kenneth recognizes the worth of having someone who isn't just a yes man around. Yeah. Definitely. And that relationship does get strained in the later books, particularly around the slavers and the live ships, both, you know, Sorkor's and Kenneth's respectively obsessions. Right. Yeah. But yeah, I wanted to take a pause there because Kenneth is going into a very carefully rehearsed speech here, talking to Sorkor, uh, specifically bringing up this leader thing that we know from the text, has not been brought up before. It's not their typical conversation, briefly, of like, hey, somebody could defend this town, and then it's dropped. Right. You now, this is a new territory, as Kenneth says. Yes. Because he notes that Sorkor is thinking very hard before he considers his words. Yeah, and I think it's also interesting to see the kind of route Kenneth is trying to take to get to where he wants to be. So his plan seems to be at the moment to blame the merchants and the whoremasters as the big problems that need to be overcome to get everybody to join under him, to say, you're still free with the leader. The leader is just helping you be more free, which is very counterintuitive. And I think 
I think he makes good points, though. He does, definitely. I think there are points to be made that, like, obviously, if you go to a town and the more you have, the more you're charged, like, that's not very sustainable. Right. (laughs) And, like, people aren't going to love that forever. So he does have good points, but I think it's interesting to see that he is trying to rally people together under a common enemy, so to speak, and that the enemy are the people that he has in his own musings thought of as soft. It kind of makes me think of people from the outer duchies because this idea that people who aren't on the sea and fighting are lesser because they are on land, they're land lovers. I just, I thought that was really interesting because we are somewhere where I don't think Ida and Elle are talked about. No, no. So, yeah, so it's not like there's that influence going on, but it does kind of seem reminiscent of the whole, like, Elle is super powerful and Ida (laughs) followers, you guys are the worst. So I don't know. I just found that really interesting. I I saw it more as, yes, I mean, immediately it's the merchant and the innkeepers and everything like that that are kind of the enemy, but he keeps bringing up the greed of humanity. Right. And the leader as a way to curb that. So it's not all directed like, hey, we need to like fight directly against these merchants and everything like that. It's like, hey, we need to govern their greed more so. So it's not a rallying call for violence or like overthrowing the town or anything. Right. It's more directed at we need some sort of rule. (laughs) Yeah. No, that is a good distinction that there isn't there isn't this sense of like we need to fight them. It's more like we need to regulate them. It's it's a very well thought out argument. Yeah, clearly he has been putting time and effort into this mm-hmm. and thinking about the best way to convince people who are free to be led. Mm-hmm. That is a hard thing to go about doing. Yep. And it continues on with Sorcor kind of responding to this, and we get a little bit more detail about who Sorcor is in a description that he has a shiny scar that was the remnants of a removed slave tattoo. So he is a former slave turned pirate. And he is thinking about all of this, what Kenneth is saying, and he responds, We be free men here. That wasn't always true. More than half of them who have come here were slaves, or going to be slaves. Many wear a tattoo still, or the scar where a slave tattoo was. And the rest, well, the rest would have to face a noose, or a lash, or maybe both if they went back to wherever they came from. A few nights back, you spoke of a king for us pirates. You're not the first to speak of it, and it seems the more merchants we get here, the more they talk up such ideas. Mayors and councils and kings and guards. But we had enough of that where we come from, and for most of us, it's why we're here instead of there. Not a one of us wants any man telling us what we can or can't do. We get enough of that on shipboard. Begging your pardon, sir. No offense taken, Sorcor. But you might consider that anarchy is but disorganized oppression. Kenneth watched Sorcor's face carefully. The moment of puzzlement told him that his selection of words had been wrong. Obviously, he was going to need more practice at this persuasion. He smiled genially. Or so some would say. I have both more faith in my fellow man and a greater appreciation for simpler words. What do we have in Divi Town now? Why, a succession of bullies. And he goes on to relate... You know, one specific gang that was beating up everybody and taking all their money. And he says that if it weren't for three ships' crews rising up one time, they would still be taking up all their money. 
So he kind of relates that to what's happening now with all the merchants taking all the money and the greed and why there needs to be some sort of rule. He says, no one does anything. It's only the business of the man who gets clubbed and robbed if that happens to them. Which it seems like is a pretty regular occurrence that it's kind of a 50-50 in town that if you pay for something and then go to the back room to receive that, then there's a 50-50 chance you will actually receive it or be clubbed and robbed. And he looks at Sorkor and the mate's brow was furrowed, but he was nodding to himself. With an odd little thrill, Kenneth realized that the man on the wheel was paying as much attention to their words as to holding the ship steady. At any other time, Kenneth would have rebuked him. Now he felt a small triumph. But Sorkor noticed at the same moment his captain did, and he springs on the man and berates him and tells him to pay attention and to the, to the ship and not to his uh, his better's words. Right. But Kenneth kind of leaves Sorkor in that conversation, feeling a little bit good about himself, but also... Unsure. Unsure, because Sorkor is very adamant of like, hey, people don't want to be ruled. Yeah. We came from that, and that's why we became pirates, because we don't want that. Right. And what I think is really interesting about Kenneth as a character is that he has such a uncanny ability to flip a conversation to continue putting him in the best light. I think it's very, Oh, hundred percent. It's very reminiscent of Regal to me. It kind yeah. of feels like we get a, a little bit of a look of how Regal was so good at his politicking that we have Kenneth here who is realizing in the middle of his pre-planned speech, like, Hey, this isn't the right direction. I need to flip it. And, can do so in a way that turns everything on its head and makes it more understandable to everybody listening and making it a little bit more agreeable. Yeah, he's it's, he's talking to his first mate and he's like, well, just, you know, think about it this way. Anarchy is disorganized oppression. And he sees like the weird, confused look on Sorkor's face and he's like, but... You know, some say that, but I have, you know, yeah, I prefer simpler, simpler words. words. <laughs> I just, I really think it's impressive that he is able to do that, that it's flipped on a switch. He's like, okay, not right next try and can do that. That's a really big talent to have. And so it's really interesting to get to see the workings behind that. I also think that it's really interesting to bring forward the points of like, People come together for the greater good all the time. Like we've done it before as a group and look at how well that turned out. Like people were getting robbed. Everybody knew if you went alone anywhere that before midnight you'd be robbed. And now that doesn't happen anymore. And like, what if we just as kept, much? Yeah, <laughs> at least it's not guaranteed. <laughs> but like now like if we if we could do that all the time, like think of all the good things that would happen. And I think that's really interesting. And to frame the the merchants and the, you know, innkeepers as the people that are just as much of a problem, yep. that it shouldn't be up to each man to defend themselves or have to worry about that problem. I think that's really smart. It is. And they kind of separate and kind of, kind of going over these arguments again. And he still needs to convince Sorkor. It's not totally finished. They kind of leave on a iffy note, right. slightly positive. Kenneth's feeling a little bit of triumph that the other sailor was also listening to him, but they separate here and Kenneth then thinks to the history of how he became a captain. And we learn a lot more about Kenneth's past becoming 
Captain Kennet of the Marietta. Yes. So he's only been on the Marietta for five years now, and it took him... 17 months to become captain. Yes. And it was a very rundown slatternly tub, as he calls it. And the captain wasn't distinguishable from his crew. He was also doling out punishments. And and Kenneth picked it specifically because it seemed ripe for overthrowing. Yes, but not just because it would be easy to overthrow, but because the bones of the ship itself were a good ship. Like, obviously, with some work, this ship would be worth uh, worth it to take over which i think is also interesting that he took that into consideration it wasn't just oh i could easily turn this crew against its captain it's also that he was also thinking about the longevity of like having the ship afterwards yeah yeah, and like what can i do to fit it Mm -hmm. i think that's really cool that like he had the foresight to do that i guess not so cool that he's like i'm gonna murder this guy because i want to be captain but (laughs) (laughs) You know, (laughs) we have uh, some insight here to what kind of Captain Kennet is, and it's very interesting to compare that to what we know about Kyle. Of course, we learn more about Kyle's captaining style later on with Wintrow, but we get a good comparison here to begin with. And he says, any ship's master who had not even the leadership to let his mate do his cursing and brawling for him was a man whose reign was ending. And we already have seen that with Kyle. Yes. But, I mean, with Althea, it's a little bit of a different case than a crewmate to Captain. So I can kind of give him a pass, but we do see it later on, too, that it's mostly Kyle kind of... He's in charge. Yeah. He's going to do everything. The mates are the bullies, and they do his bidding, but Kyle is also in the middle of that as well. So it's kind of a little bit of a foreshadowing of the style doesn't work out. <laughs> but it says here that it took Kenneth 17 months to overthrow the captain and an additional four months to see his mate over the side as well. By the time he stepped up to command the Marietta, his fellow sailors were clamoring eagerly to follow him. So 21 months total before he became the captain. Right. He chose Sorcor with care and all but courted the man to make him his loyal subordinate. Once they had taken command, he and Sorcor took the vessel out on the open seas far from sight of land. There they called the crew as a gambler discards worthless cards at a table. As the only men capable of reading a chart or setting a course, they were almost immune from mutiny, yet Kennet never let Sorcor's strictness cross the line into abuse. Kennet believed that, the most, that most men were happiest under a firm hand. If that hand also supplied cleanliness and the security of knowing one's place, the men would be only the more content." Those that could be made into decent sailors were. They sailed to the limits of the ship's biscuits and the stars he and Sorcor knew, and they brought it into a far, far distant port that no one recognized. They were able to fit the ship with the money that Kenneth had saved, and finally they were able to hire on some more crew that didn't know them as pirates because it looked like a merchant ship. Yes, and that was the plan all along, was to, uh, in this new place, to pretend to be a merchant ship. Um, That was kind of how they got people to work on their ship, I'm sure. (laughs) Yes, and after that, they spent a month of very precision piracy and returned to Divi Town very wealthy. Yes. And that's kind of where Kenneth says that, you know, his ship, his crew got loyalty and he started to make a name for himself. Right. Because he showed that he could provide wealth, which is very important. The pirates are very 
um, all about being wealthy, uh, which isn't that surprising. <laughs> he ends it with, in a single voyage, Kenneth had gained a ship, a reputation, and his fortune. And I do want to kind of go back just a little bit to his philosophy of captaining, because yes. again, as a comparison to Kyle, it is very different. And that's a merchant to a pirate. Right. You know, and this is, he never let his first mate cross his strictness into abuse, which is not the case for <laughs> Kyle. He believes that men are happiest under a firm hand, but one that also provides cleanliness and, right. you know, the wealth that they need to support themselves. He has a very fair idea of how to captain. Yeah. And we can, and I think that's also part of the reason why a lot of people for the first time through love Kennet in the beginning and think he's like, oh, he's like this debonair kind of person, even though he's kind of kind of psychopathic and sociopathic <laughs> in some ways. It's a little rough around of, the edges. You can bypass that because he he treats people decently. Not everybody, but like as right. a whole, I mean he treats people decently. Even when inside he is criticizing people and calling them dumb and not really expecting much, he is still giving people respect yeah. and thinking everyone deserves to at least live that way, which mm -hmm. I think is a big difference from other villains that we see. Because you, you can compare him directly to Kyle later on, and that's right. probably also raises Kenneth's standing, you know, yeah. standing in the eyes of the readers because Kyle is plummeting and you're like, oh, Kenneth's so much better than Kyle. And then like... If you just read Kenneth by himself, it's like, ooh, this guy's not good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is really interesting. It's It makes sense when you read him how he has cultivated the following he has. It makes sense why people think he's charismatic. It makes sense why he is successful in what he does because he is someone who is doing what looks best, which happens to actually be nice for people around him. Mm -hmm. So even though... And he, he is lucky. <laughs> yeah, he is very lucky. But I think even though the intentions aren't necessarily the best, it's still working out really well for others. And so that's like an easy thing to be like, well, he's not that bad because at least he's treating people like human beings, even when he doesn't like them. And I don't know. I think that's really interesting about him. And I think that's probably why Sorkor respects him. As yeah. a former slave, Sorkor probably has a lot of prejudice that he's had to fight against forever. And here's Kenneth coming in and respecting him for being smart and not really making anything of the fact that he was once a slave. But I also think that Kenneth's style and knowledge of how to captain a ship well probably comes from the fact that he is from a live ship trading family. Like yeah. He, I mean, he was really young when he was taken away from that, but I have to imagine that he still saw how people ran a ship well. That and he was on Urgot's ship for a while. Right. And... Even though Urgot was a horrible, horrible person and treated Kenneth abysmally to the point where he died several times. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he still was a extremely feared pirate and very successful. So obviously right. he knew how to captain as well. He's yeah. had good examples. Yeah. So it is interesting to think about where Kenneth is drawing this knowledge from because I think Kenneth's pretty young here. Like he's 
I don't know, maybe early 30s. Yeah, I'm I not even, sure. I haven't even looked up the age or anything like no, that. No, I haven't either. But I was just thinking like, I he can't be like 50s, 60s because. No, no. No, I, I would have to think he's in his 30s somewhere because he's like 10 years from now is when I run risk of being too old. And I feel like not that 40s is old, but I feel like in your 40s is probably where if you are a pirate, <laughs> you stop being as able. Maybe he's in his 40s and it's the 50s that he's worried about. I don't know. Yeah, we're not sure. But anyway... It's just really interesting because he seems somewhat young and he is still able to command so much respect and has a lot of knowledge. And then on the other hand, we have Kyle, who I picture to be around the same age as Kenneth, <laughs> who doesn't, who isn't very good at stepping up to be in charge and who doesn't seem to have any good examples to look at to be better. I don't know. It's very interesting, though. I see some thread on the uh, Internet here that. Kenneth might be in his late 30s, early 40s, because apparently in Mad Ship, he mentions something about waiting for 35 years for revenge on Urgot. So okay. possibly early 40s for Kenneth. I guess that would make more sense. Yeah, because 40s isn't old enough for like, yeah. Hmm. But in the next section here, after we said like, yeah, he has a great captaining style. Once more, we get an example of him looking down on other people and a real life example that an anecdote that he kind of lives by like, Oh, people are, these are just sailors. They're not actual, like, you know, good people that I can trust, trust and base my empire on because he watches his crew after this first voyage, go down to the dock, swaggering about with all their wealth. And he knows it's just going to be all spent. Their plunder would be engulfed in Divi Town's maw in a matter of hours, and suddenly the immaculately clean decks and neatly sewn sails and crisp paint on the Marietta seemed as brief and shallow a triumph as his crew's wealth. He rebuffed Sorcor's companionship and instead spent their week in port drinking in the dimness of his cabin. He had never expected to be so disheartened by success. He felt cheated. It took him months to recover. He moved through that time in a numb blackness, bewildered by the hopelessness that had settled on him. Some distant part of himself recognized then how well he had chosen in Sorcor. The mate carried on as if nothing were amiss, and never once inquired into the captain's state of mind. If the crew sensed something was odd, there was no evidence of it. Kennet was of the philosophy that on a well-run ship, the captain need never speak directly to the crew, but should only make his wishes known to the mate and trust him to see them carried out. That habit served him well in those despairing days. He had not felt himself again until the morning that Sorcor had rapped on his door to announce that they had a fine, fat merchant vessel in sight, and did the captain wish to pursue her. They not only pursued her, but grappled and boarded her, securing for themselves a fine cargo of wine and perfumes. Kennet left Sorcor in charge of the Marietta's deck, while he himself led the crew onto the merchant vessel. Up to that time, he had viewed battle and killing as one of the untidy aspects of his chosen career. For the first time that day, his heart caught fire with battle fury. Over and over again, he slew his anger and his disappointment, until to his shock there was suddenly no one left to oppose him. He turned from the last body that had fallen at his feet to find his men gathered in knots on the deck, staring at him in a sort of fascination. 
He heard not so much as a whispered remark, but the combination of horror and admiration in their eyes told him much. He thought he had won his crew to him with discipline, but that was the day when they actually gave him their hearts. They would not speak familiarly with him, nor ever regard him with fondness, but when they went forth to drink and carouse through Divitown, they would brag of his strict shipboard discipline that marked them as men of endurance, and his savagery with a sword that marked them as a ship to be feared. So we have an example of Kenneth falling into a extremely deep depression. Right. He has these black moods, as he calls them, and this is the first example that he can recall of that happening. Right. And I wonder if that's not necessarily true. I'm sure that this didn't just happen because things weren't as great as he thought they would be. I feel like Kenneth has had such a dark life, <laughs> such a hard upbringing that it's no wonder that like he is prone to this depression. Right. I mean, not that you have to have a horrible life for that to happen, but it does explain why Kenneth kind of gets so bad, I think. I think it's also really interesting that he has set up a system where once again his luck is able to show or I guess he's able to show his luck. He had already put in place that he doesn't need to be there for his ship to run. Right. And so when he did fall into a dark depression, he was able to have nobody find out about it. That's super lucky as a pirate captain. Yeah. Like you can't show weakness and or else your crew could mutiny. And here he was depressed and his crewmate probably or crews probably had no idea. And I don't know. I just think it's like really sad, but also a really good show of his luck again. Right. That he and his good foresight in choosing Sorcor as well. Yeah. That he was able to say, you know what, something's wrong. I'll just let the captain figure it out and I'll take care of things. And he did. And Sorcor is very competent. Mm -hmm. I also find it really interesting that we see that the first time that the crew is giving their hearts to the captain is when he is slaying the ship that they're capturing. So, or the people on the ship that they're capturing. And it really paints this really interesting picture where before this, I assume Kenneth probably didn't really go over to the other side of the deck no. and probably tried to stay away from bloodshed as much as possible because it's just kind of not something he's super into. But as pirates, that's probably something that most of them enjoy doing. That's probably part of it. And so wow, seeing such stereotypes. <laughs> well, I would assume that like that shows that you're really tough or something, you right, know, yeah. Not, maybe I shouldn't say that they like it, but like, <laughs> I mean, reputation is going to be a big thing for pirates too. Like, right. It, yeah. What Kenneth brings up afterwards is like when they went carousing and drinking everything, it showed them that they were a ship to be feared. Right. And that was a big thing for the crew. Yeah. And then they expected Kenneth to lead all of the, the parties over and he does yeah. to other ships, but he does show mercy. Yes. He does show them that it's okay to show mer mercy every once in a while because a lot of times you get more from showing mercy than you do from just killing everybody outright. And so I think that's really interesting, too, that we see kind of, kind of changing the culture of what it is to be a pirate. Um, 
because it is something that his crewmates didn't really agree with until they saw the money it put in their pockets. He says that satisfying greed in a pirate is usually enough to make them forget the loss of the blood. So I, I don't know. I just think it's really interesting how even though he's really down on himself because his crew didn't live up to his expectations are not absolutely perfect. He still is able to change their minds about things. It's slow, but he, I mean, that's huge. <laughs> and he then catches us up to the present, saying in the intervening years, he secured his little empire, basically got contacts in Chalced that would buy, you know, questionably gotten goods. And also people that would give him tips on merchant ships and things like that. Yeah. Little, you know, shady lordlings from Chalced. And he's started to fantasize a little bit more that those lords would actually give legitimacy to a free Pirate Isles sovereign nation. He then says, um, or he goes over again, what his goal is would provide both sides, what the deal that he wants to happen is. It says, for the pirates, they would get legitimacy, with no threat of a noose to haunt them, open trade with other ports, and once he unified the pirate isles and towns, they could act together to put an end to the slavers raiding their towns. He worried briefly that would not be enough for them, but then pushed that thought aside. For the merchants of Chalced and the traders of Bingtown, the benefits were clearer, Safe use for the, of the inside passage up the coast to Bingtown, Chalced, and the lands beyond. It would not be free, of course. Nothing could be free, but it would be safe. A smile ghosted across his lips. They'd like that change. So again, we get a clear idea of what Kenneth's goal is. To become king of the Pirate Isles, have it recognized as a nation, and then broker a deal and a peace to have it recognized as a nation with benefits to both sides. Right. And the hard part is he's not sure about the actual people of the Pirate Isles seeing it as enough of a benefit. Everybody else would, and he knows that that's going to be not as hard to get to go his way. It's just the people of the Pirate Isles. Because like Sorkor said, these are people who chose to come here because they wanted to be free above everything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and they, they won't take kindly to the profession change either of being tax collectors rather than, yeah. you know, pirates stealing the goods going through and just collecting fees. Right. I do think it is really interesting though, because this is, I guess, going back a little bit that Sorcor had mentioned that with the increase of merchants coming, that they were the ones bringing the idea that a ruler was needed. Right. Because I don't think people know that Kenneth's background is that he was part of a merchant family. Oh, no, no. So it is really interesting as rereaders that we know that that's probably where Kenneth got the idea. It's such a merchant mindset, a, a mindset of how can I make the most and how can I change the system to better benefit me? And I don't even mean that necessarily in a negative way. I just think that's like so interesting that you have you see the commonalities between Kennet and merchants, even though he seems to disdain them and right. think less of them. There's still obviously some connection there. Because they're weak. <laughs> but also, I think Kennet is underestimating a little bit 
the people of the Pirate Isles. And it once again shows his luck of how he kind of stumbles into things that work out. Right. Of trading the slavers for chasing after a live ship with Sorcor. Having, you know, the whole place, whole Divi Town rally behind freeing slaves and establishing, you know, freed slave nations and like cities and things like that really gets the people behind him to say like, hey, if we can broker this deal and I can become king and then no slavers will raid our towns, that's a huge thing. But it only comes because of his luck and trading off, you know, going after his actual ambition of getting a live ship. Right. No, it is really crazy that Kenneth Kenneth really lucks out into getting exactly what he wants all the time. It is really interesting to follow him because you can see the little foreshadowing in even this early of a chapter of what is going to happen and what is missing from the equation and then seeing how that's fixed mostly by luck on Kenneth's part. It's really amazing. He's like the anti-fits. Yeah. You know, they they both kind of, things turn out the way that they should. One in Kenneth's favor, and then in Fitz's side, it's in like the six duchies and the fool's favor. But (laughs) one of them's at the expense of Fitz, and the other one is just like, hey, Kenneth's perfect in every way, every decision he makes. (laughs) While Fitz is just making all of the wrong ones that happen to be decent decisions for the future of the six duchies. (laughs) It's so funny. Yeah, I think maybe all of the luck in the world that was supposed to go to Fitz has gone to Kenneth instead yeah, in some weird way. <laughs> I, I believe that. Well, anyway, we have the ship has finally gotten to dock. Um, as we said before, they kind of had to navigate this long river to get to uh, get to the pirate isle. It's inside of the island to kind of sh- uh, shield it from outside view or people who would want to harm the pirates. And we have the crew waiting expectantly below Kennet on deck for the divvying of the loot. Yes. This is kind of their standard deal. When they get back to Divi Town, they divvy it all up. (laughs) (laughs) So he has a kind of a standard deal that's laid out. Apparently this is an offer every single time. You can accept your share of the raw goods that they have, you know, the the bales of cloth, the, you know, kegs of ale, things like that. All the raw goods, you can get your share of that and sell it off on your own, trade it into the merchants, the innkeepers, whatever, do what you want with it. Or you can get a cash advance from the captain for your spending coin and then get coin value based on what the bulk goods can be sold for but you get your loot later like more of your your coin later right and Kenneth is of the opinion that that is the best deal because one they can get more for it if they sell much more in bulk right two it's a captain arguing and, and dealing in mass quantities with a merchant and not just like an innkeeper like oh this like you know span of cloth We'll get you one night, you know, just kind of straight up bargaining and not knowing their worth, taking advantage of the sailors. So Kenneth's all like, this is the best deal. Please do it. And Sorcor knows like, no, like hardly anybody does this. (laughs) I already got it all portioned out of who's going to take that deal and who's not. Right. People just want their, their goods and to go off. Right. That's just how things have always been done. And Kenneth does try to plea with them to say, like, ask your fellow crewmates who have 
taken me up on this offer that it is more lucrative to do it this way and you get way more and you know just like explains it's more one bolt of cloth is not worth as much right. as oh like Whole five bales. of them yeah. yeah so like think about that but okay. everybody's kind of okay okay we get it can we just get to right knowing what we get now <laughs> because while they're on the deck here and sorkor is reading off what's you know being divvied up all of the free girls and the some merchants that are hawking goods and stuff are gathered around the docks, catcalling all the sailors and kind of showing their wares, <laughs> physical and physical wares, <laughs> to entice the sailors who are getting their, their new goods. So Kenneth's, again, frustrated and he sees all of his hard-earned goods being kind of just gone into the void of Divi Town already. Right. It, yeah, it is. I get Kenneth's frustration here because clearly it would be easier to just sell everything and give everybody gold. But that's also kind of a merchant's way of looking at things. And I don't know if the pirates value the gold aspect as much as they value just doing it themselves. As Kenneth has said, the more money you have in this town the more things cost. So maybe it's more lucrative for them not to have to worry about having a bunch of gold and said they can trade it for what they want or trade whatever the physical goods are for what they want. But we also get a little look into another little detail of Sorcor. So Sorcor, when it's his turn to read off the list, he opens a parchment and Kenneth says pretends to read. And it's then that we learn that Sorkor cannot read. But he has an excellent memory. Yes, he has perfect memory and seems to be really good at mental math. Kenneth says that he might not be able to read or write, but if you asked him what the divvy of four bales of, or four casks of ale is between the crew, he would immediately know the answer. Yeah, he's good at his job. He is. So once the list has been quote unquote read, <laughs> Kenneth says, if you would like to take me up on my offer, please stand in line outside my office. Everybody else can just go to Sorcor because he finds that it's easier to give Sorcor the job of giving them the physical and items. No one's complained yet. So no. he's doing good. <laughs> yeah. They also, what's interesting is part of this giving of the physical items is Sorcor telling them their worth so that they know what to bargain for later. And I, I find that really interesting because I think that's a really important thing to do. I think that's nice that they offer that. I don't know if every other ship does that, but Sorcor is basically telling them the worth of their portion so that they can make better trades later. Oh, really? I yeah. I didn't see that in the, in the text. They would simply have to accept the mate's assessment of what one third of a bale of silk was worth in terms of two fifths of a keg of brandy or half a measure of sindin. Oh, I I took that as they have like sindin and brandy and, and you know, cloth right. to divvy up. But like you can't just give one crewmate a piece of everything. So... I, I took it as Sorcor knew the value to way of like, hey, this much Sindin is worth this much ale. And like, that's um, how it's equal amongst all the crew. And the crew doesn't complain because they think Sorcor is pretty fair and that's that must be equal value split up. Okay. But they just don't know. So that's what I took it as because I, I didn't think Sorcor would know like the market value okay. of going in. 
Interesting. Okay, that makes that makes more also sense. Makes I suppose. Sense, <laughs> yeah. See, I was like sitting here being like, okay, you get this much thing, and it's worth like go bargain. It's yeah. like four four gold or whatever. Make sure that you. See. <laughs> That's how I read it. Okay. Well, maybe not, but. Either way, Sorcor is very good at divvying up yeah. in a somewhat fair manner. And Kenneth kind of doesn't care if it isn't fair. At least he's not hearing about it. Yeah. So I suppose good for Sorcor. <laughs> so all the divvying up happens. The giving out of, you know, the cash advance from Kenneth happens. And Kenneth turns aside from all the bluster of the docks and everything and turns to Sorcor, who has already finished giving out his portion as well to most of the crew. He frown- Kenneth frowns slightly. The, mace- the mate must have known in advance which men wanted their shares as goods and have already calculated what he would give them. Then his brow smoothed. It was more efficient that way, and that was ever Sorcor's way. Kenneth offered him a pouch heavy with coin, and the mate took it wordlessly. After a moment, he rolled his shoulder and turned to face his captain. So, Sorkor, are you coming with me to change our cargo to gold? Sorkor took an embarrassed step sideways. If the captain doesn't mind, I'd sooner have a bit of time to myself first. Kenneth concealed his disappointment. It's all one to me, he lied. Then he said quietly, I have a mind to turn off those men who always insist on taking their shares as raw goods. The more I have to sell in bulk, the better price I can get. What think you? And this is where it gets a little bit interesting, and we see some of the, you know... The willingness to say no from right. Sorcor happens because he speaks up for those crew members. He says, it's their right, sir, to take their crew shares as goods if they choose. That's the way it's always been done in Divi Town. He weighs his words heavily before he goes on. They're good men, sir, good sailors, true shipmates, and not a one shirks whether the work is with a sail needle or a sword. But they didn't become pirates to live under another man's rules, no matter how good for them that rule might be. With difficulty, he met Kenneth's eyes and added, No man becomes a pirate because he wants to be ruled by another. His certainty increased as he added, And we'd pay hell's own wages to try and replace them. They're seasoned hands, not scrapings from a brothel floor. The kind of man you'd get if you went about asking for men who'd let you sell their prizes for them wouldn't have the spines to act on their own. They'd be the kind as would stand back while you cleared another ship's deck and only cross when the victory was assured. You've won these men over to you, sir. They'll follow you, but you'd be wise to try to force them. You'd be not. But you'd not be wise to try to force them to give up their wills to you. All this talk of kings and leaders makes them uneasy. You can't force a man to fight well for you. Sorkor's voice trailed off as he glanced suddenly up at Kennet as if recalling to whom he spoke. A sudden icy anger seethed through Kennet. No doubt that's so, Sorkor. See that a good watch is kept aboard, for I won't be back this night. I leave you in charge. With no more than that, Kenneth turned and left him. He didn't glance back to read the expression on the mate's face. He'd essentially confined him to the ship for the night, for the agreement between them was that one of them would always sleep aboard when the ship was in port. Well, let him mutter. Sorcor had just crippled all the dreams that Kenneth had been entertaining for the last few months. As he strode across his decks, Kenneth wondered bitterly how he could be such a fool to dream it all. This as much as he'd ever be the captain of a ship full of wastrels who could see no farther than their own cocks. And he jumps down and walks through Divi Town again in a black mood. Right. So I think this 
page, this passage, really shows how much respect Kenneth has for Sorkor. Because Sorkor saying, I don't think this is a good idea and people don't really want to be ruled is enough to make Kenneth feel like his dream is over. Yeah. I find that most interesting because who we see in the first chapter of Kenneth feels like someone who, if they were told by anyone else, like, that's silly, you're not going to be king, it would just incite him to try harder. Like, right. he's going to do it. He knows he can do it. And they are just a naysayer. But when it's Sorkor, he really takes that to heart. It really affects him that Sorkor doesn't think he can succeed. And I find that really interesting. Like, I find their relationship to be so weird. I don't know, like, a better <laughs> word for it. <laughs> Sorkor is also kind of the the post that Kenneth measures all the other crews by because right. he is intelligent and can think for himself. If he can convince Sorkor, the the deal's sealed, basically. Right. But if he can't, that puts a damper on, like, all of his plans. Right. Yeah. So... So him not accepting it makes kind of angry, not just because Sorkor said it, even though I do believe that the relationship is more unique than Kenneth has with other people. It's just, it is a dashing of Kenneth's dreams that Sorkor doesn't easily accept it. Right. And there's no hint of acceptance in right. this. Yeah. I don't know. I just, yeah. But Kenneth goes on kind of a... Uh, I don't know. He He's very hard on himself after this. And he switches moods very easily, it seems like. He's very full of himself and proud and like, oh yeah, I can manipulate anybody. And then immediately, when something doesn't go wrong or if his plans crash, he's the worst person in the world. He'll always be useless. He'll captain this for what? For 10 years and then somebody stronger and faster will come up and take over him. You know, all these different things that he's he's useless and his life is useless and there's no purpose to it kind of kind of spiraling in. Right. It's really interesting. It honestly makes Kenneth a relatable character to me personally. Oh yeah. I yeah. like, I definitely have moments where like I'm really confident in myself where I can do stuff and then something will go wrong. And even if it's just like a little thing, sometimes that like causes me to like think in these terms of like, Oh, I'm trash and like, I can't do it. I'm so dumb. And I think it's really interesting to see a character also struggle with that, to see that internal struggle in a character who is otherwise so self-assured. Yeah. Like to the point where he's almost narcissistic in what he believes of himself. So it's really interesting to see this warring personality. I think it also feels a little bit like a mirror with Paragon that there's these two completely different sides of Kenneth that yeah. are warring with each other, just like Paragon has two completely different dragons warring mm -hmm. with each other inside of him. <laughs> and he also gets black moods and things like that. Yeah. yeah. And so I think it's really cool to see these little like sprinklings of how much they are alike. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I just find that so interesting. So Kenneth is full of self-hatred as he goes about Divi town and he knows it's no time to haggle or try to sell anything, but he does it anyways. He doesn't care at this point. So he gets a really bad deal for him on one part of it, but 
when the merchant tries to buy the other stuff for the same kind of deal, he uncovers the wrath and then sells it for more than he would have otherwise. So it kind of balances out. Yeah. And it's luck wouldn't let him right. <laughs> lose money. <laughs> yeah. So he, he, he goes around and does all these things and he's just thinking of all these, you know, these self-destructive thoughts about how he wants to avenge himself on the world and just destroy it all because everything sucks and, and things like that. And he's staying away from, you know, the alleyways where people are going to come and rob him and stays to the middle of the street and kind of walks around how and thinks how Divi Town sucks and all of this sort of, I don't know, just very dark thoughts. And at the at the end of it, kind of, he he's trying to discover who is at fault for his situation throughout his whole head and his whole thoughts. And it did not please him to decide that the fault, as always, was his own. So as you said, he just kind of has these spirals where he can't get over anything that he does wrong or anything that goes wrong is his fault in some way. Right. I think it's also important to note that before this, it kind of seems as though the wind is going out of his sails. The anger is fading. Right now he's angry that everything's going wrong. He's angry at everyone else. There's this mask of anger and it says as if recalling a forgotten appointment it came to Kenneth that he was hungry and thirsty and tired and sad and I think that's what makes this so full of a character Mm -hmm. that there's this anger there sure and that he is angry and it makes sense because his hopes have been dashed but underneath that anger is also a sadness that yeah. that He's anger is just miserable. <laughs> yeah, this anger is just the the masking of the sadness that he doesn't want to feel. It's easier to be angry than it is to be sad and he hasn't been able to emotionally mature past that. And so he is struggling. He's because he is realizing he's sad. Mm-hmm. And his feet has carried him to Bettel's Bagnio. Light leaked past the shutters in the low windows, music sounded faintly from within, and the edged soprano of a woman singing. There were perhaps a dozen buildings in Divi Town that were more than one story high. Bettles was one of them. White paint, tiny balconies, and a red-tiled roof. It looked like someone had plucked up a Chalcedian brothel and plopped it down in the mud in Divi Town. So he's known here. He goes in past the two bravos guarding the door, and he's still in kind of a miserable mood. He notes that he's looking at them. They're kind of smirking at him. And he notes that they are idiots because they think that their strength is going to be enough forever. And he knows better that that's not enough. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really interesting. This is the underarching theme that he know everybody else is so dumb because they don't understand how quickly everything can change. And I think that this is mostly a trauma response. Oh that, yeah. I mean, clearly he's always trying to plan for the future yeah, and set things up. He's always thinking about the things that are going to go wrong and how to stop that from happening. And he looks down on everyone else because they don't plan that way. They're not thinking about 10 years from now and not being as strong as they are now, what they're going to do for a job because they won't still have this one. Cause the whole reason they're being hired is to be strong And I think that's kind of a sad way to live. And it makes sense when you think about what he's gone through. He's not wrong. No. He's just a dick. Yeah. And 
it's not necessarily a healthy way to look at every single aspect of right. life. Yeah. Like that just isn't a good way to go through life. <laughs> but he goes through the door, he goes in and before he can even say that he is upset because he's not being seen to Bettle, the owner of this brothel comes up to him to say, where have you been? You're late. And Kenneth talks a little bit about how there are a lot of different ladies everywhere. None of them really look at him except for two that seem to be new. Mm -hmm. And Bethel tells him that the woman that he wants, Etta, is gone because she can't wait all night for him. Yeah. She's like, you're not the only one who favors her. So she can't wait forever. And Kenneth immediately overrides Bethel and is like, Fetch her and send her to the topmost chamber. Wait, have her bathe first while I'm eating. Send me up a good meal with fresh bread, neither fish nor pork. The rest I leave to you. And the wine, Bettel. I have a palate. Do not send me the decomposing grapes you served me with the last time, or this house shall lose my patronage entirely. Bettel, of course, is like, well, what, should I simply just knock on that door and say, hey... And yeah. is required elsewhere, like... Yeah, like there's another <laughs> paying customer. Good. Yeah. yeah. It, money is money, and somebody else has already paid for her. And Kenneth just ignores her and walks up to the topmost room, expecting everything to go his way, which it does, because I'm sure he pays a lot. Right. He mentioned several times that he pays her for things to go his way. Right. I mean, that's his cynical outlook on things. It's basically like, yeah, I, I pay her to remember me. And, you know, have all these things to my liking. Right. So he's not flattered by saying, oh, you're late, Kenneth. Why didn't you come directly here? We missed you. You know, all that sort of stuff. He's like, well, I pay her well enough. She should do those things. Yeah. She should miss me or whatever. Right. So it's just a cynical, like, transactional look. Outlook, Outlook on on the merchants and the the whorehouses and things like that. Right. No, and he... He also says that the fact that he knows that this is a gimmick is what makes it annoying. That otherwise he would probably feel flattered, but he knows it's just a gimmick. Definitely true, yeah. Very cynical. (laughs) (laughs) Per usual. But he gets up to his room, the topmost floor that does not share a wall with anything else. And he waits there. A serving man comes in, sets a fire for him. Two more come in and set a meal down for him. The serving man that comes in to set the fire, he notices has a scar on his face and also looks like he's been in a brawl. I believe that this is one of the assassins, right? Or later he's attacked in this room. And I think that this guy is... I don't remember. Okay. I'm pretty sure that the guy giving the firewood at the very least is part of the people attacking him. Possibly. Yeah, I'm not sure. But... I don't I don't know about the other two guys. They're not described as much, but it is there is a big deal about the descriptor of the guy that looks like he has a scar on his face and he looks like he's gotten into a few fights. But he moved with a quiet grace. Yes. So he is presented with, you know, a bowl and an ewer of steaming water, well scented with lavender that much, at least, Bettel had remembered of his tastes, he thought, and felt flattered in spite of himself. He washed his face and hands again and gestured the servants out of the room before he sat down to his meal. And he was impressed with the food right. as well. It's actually good. The meat is good. The fish is flaky. Everything's tender and cooked to perfection. 
And he talks a little bit about how whenever he's in a bad mood, he finds himself kind of savoring the little things that are pleasurable. Says indulging in physical pleasures. Um, he, he seldom does that unless he's in a bitter mood. Right. And it makes him think of the times when he was younger that his mom would pamper him when he was ill. So that's really interesting. It also makes him mad to think about that. And he immediately pushes that thought from his mind. So we see this habit of comfort coming from childhood. Mm -hmm. A tap at the door heralded the dessert. Enter, Kenneth said listlessly. The brief distraction of the meal had faded and the pit of depression that now yawned before him was bottomless. Useless it was, all of it. Useless and temporary. I've brought you warm apple tart and sweet fresh cream, Etta said quietly. And we get Etta to enter the room here. It's our first introduction to her as well. I really like Etta as a character. Yeah, I think she is really interesting. I think she is pretty strong-willed for the line of work that she has found herself in. Um, because I think it's probably a little hard to stay strong-willed when you're getting paid to not be, I guess. Like, it's and not very about optimistic, her. too. Yeah, she is. She, you know, looks forward to the future. She is smart. She thinks about things deeply. And I think it's really interesting to have her as a character and how, I guess, I don't know, I don't know how confident she is. I, I love it. I think she's really cool. We get some physical descriptors of her as well uh, throughout all of this. Straight and sleek, he thought. She was near as tall as he was, long-limbed and limber as a willow wand. And it kind of continues on, and eventually she says, I'm not what most men want in, you know, in a companion. Right. She is kind of boy-like. The descriptors that that kind of uses, uses yeah. are kind of boyish. She even has short hair that is cut like a boy's, it specifically said. And so she isn't something that is favored by, or she's yeah. not a person that is favored by most people. Long, flat flanks. Even the planes of her face were long and flat. And it's, yeah, not really like beauty descriptors that yeah. you would normally see on like a, a woman. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting. Also, I mean, we can get into it more later when it's more revealed, but also from Kenneth's childhood trauma responses right. and things like that. So. <laughs> yeah, it, it seems as though Kenneth does prefer male company. Um, he just thinks of it as bad because of what he's gone through in his past. And so he pushes himself to be into women. It just so happens that his type of woman is a woman who looks like she is more androgynous than yeah a little bit more than boyish feminine. than yeah. feminine yeah which you know there's nothing wrong intrinsically with that that like everybody has preferences it's like more so the deeper underneath problem of like i don't know clearly there's a lot of internal hate there that he can't just accept that he likes men <laughs> but also like a little sad that he's like okay i'll have the next best thing and yeah so I feel bad for him that he can't just, like, live the life that he should. <laughs> I don't know. feel bad for Etta as well for being used for it. So. Yes, right. No, it definitely is sad that Etta clearly has some type of feelings towards Kenneth. But also understands that he doesn't really have any feelings towards her. Yes, that it's kind of all on her. But it's still optimistic and hoping beyond hope that 
he does. Right. It's kind of a interesting dynamic there. Definitely very unbalanced power dynamic because she is getting paid, first of all, to be non-responsive, not looking in his eyes. Just she understands she, she's just there for his pleasure. Yeah. Like there's a bunch of stuff. Has he has high demands again, we see of cleanliness. He's washed his hands twice. Uh, demanded that she be washed and everything. And I don't know. It's it's very weird dynamic that they set up with Etta to have this, this still like fondness for Kenneth. But we do see a reason for that a little bit later when they have a conversation. Right. So once again, I just want to kind of emphasize he paid for... He paid for his satisfaction. He did not want her encouragement or enthusiasm. He did not need her approval. This was for his pleasure, not hers. It's, I don't know, it's so clinical. Yeah, it's, it's a transaction. All of, this is just a need that his body has, and he is going to satisfy it, just like mm-hmm. hunger or thirst. Mm-hmm. And that's such a... like you said, clinical way to look at this. And I think it's kind of different probably from how others would do it. (laughs) Oh yeah. So yeah. It's kind of is emotionally stunted from being forged by Paragon, you know? Yes. No, it definitely, it definitely is an interesting thing to think about. He also points out or describes the wizardwood charm that she has in her navel. And that's where he got the idea for his charm. Hers is for keeping away pregnancy and disease. And that's how he understood that Wizardwood could be used for such things. Right. He didn't know they could be used for charms before. She basically has a belly button piercing. Yeah. And part of it is a Wizardwood skull. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's really interesting to think, too, about the magic of Wizardwood, Wizardwood being used in such a way. Yeah. It's a contraceptive and also, like protects from STDs. That's pretty, uh, pretty nice. (laughs) Seems to be no effect on the woman, which is also nice. So I don't know. What an interesting way to think of using wizard wood. (laughs) But we also know that this is pretty common um, because later we find out Althea also has one of these. So this is kind of, do we really? Yeah. Cause she got it after what happened to her. Oh, okay. Yeah, so mm. this has I to be about that. Yeah, so this has to be something that's kind of like a a well-known secret among women, I would assume. Yeah. But, but also very expensive and also very probably hard to get unless you right. know the right people because right. wizard wood is very protective. Yeah. And we know that they're very expensive because Etta has told Kenneth that she has to pay part of her, half her wages. Yeah, half of her wages to the rental of this mm-hmm. wizard wood uh charm. charm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So he kind of after after he and Ada uh, finish up, he goes and just eats dessert because it is transactional. And Ada starts to talk to him, and he's not really into that kind of thing. He doesn't want to talk. <laughs> it's really interesting because he still answers her and doesn't like t- 
tell her to stop talking. Right. But in his head, it's all like, why is she talking? Like, yeah, like I, I wish she would stop, but this is the worst. Because he, it, it's really weird dichotomy in his brain because he wants to keep it transactional. And yet he is such a lonely person that he wants some sort of companionship as well. But he can't admit it to himself and he just wants to keep it surface level. Right. Like he, he felt disappointed that Sorcor wasn't going to come, you know, sell the goods with him because he wanted somebody with him. You know, right. there's this whole thing of like not telling Edda to stop talking to him or keeping it at something and always giving little hints of answering back and, you know, maybe affection, just little things that just kind of string everybody along and doesn't let him indulge in being a friend to anybody. Right. But also wanting that, but then also not wanting it <laughs> at the same time. It, yeah, it's really confusing and also heartbreaking that he is living this way. Like, that's not a way to live. That's not, I wouldn't wish that on someone, uh, somebody, I don't know. That's he, what that. he is very confrontational in his responses, though. Yes, he, it's, <laughs> he's not saying don't talk to me, but the way he's talking to her is it's a little like, bit. like, don't talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> when you were late, I feared you were not coming. Do you imagine I care what you fear or think? Her eyes almost met his. I think you would care if I were not here, now, as I cared when you were not here before. This is a stupid conversation. I do not care to continue it. I, she said. It didn't matter if she was agreeing or, you know, just accepting his command. Right. Because she stopped talking either way. <laughs> right. And with the silence comes more misery. He starts thinking about how by this time people are probably already talking about the other island. He's a laughing stock of Divi Town. He just knows that everybody is talking bad about him. He says, idiot dolt. By now he was a laughing stock of Divi Town. He could imagine their mockery in the taverns and inns. King of the pirates, they'd say, as if we want or need a king. As if we'd have him as a king, if we did want or need one, and they'd laugh. Shame rose up to engulf him. He humiliated himself yet again, and as always, it was his own fault. He was stupid, 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 and his only hope of surviving was in not letting anyone else know how stupid he was. And with that, we see how kind of broken Kenneth is. He is spiraling. He is self-doubting. He last time we saw a chapter with Kenneth, he was so self-sure. He has luck. You can't doubt luck or else the luck doesn't stay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And here we have something not going the way he wanted to. And all of a sudden, everything is horrible. I'm the dumbest person alive and everybody's going to know it. And there's no way for me to stop that. I can't believe I didn't just wait. It's so sad yeah yeah <laughs> so he's, sad. he's a broken man and people are there trying to comfort him and he just won't let them in at a pipes up and says shall i come and rub your shoulders Kenneth?" he turns to glare at her who did she think she was to interrupt his thoughts why do you think i'd welcome that he demanded coldly her voice had no inflection as she observed you look troubled weary and tense you think you can know those things by looking at me whore her dark eyes dared to meet his. A woman knows these things by looking at a man when she has looked at him often over three years. She rose and came to stand behind him, naked still. 
She set her long, narrow hands to his shoulders and worked at his muscles through the thin silk of his robe. It felt so good. For a time, he sat still and tolerated her touch on him, but then she began to speak as she needed at his knotted muscles. He tolerated it. Okay, Kevin. No. <laughs> massage feels good. Come on. Everybody knows that it's great to get your shoulders massaged. <laughs> and she speaks of missing him on long voyages and wondering if he's going to come back at all. And maybe, you know, they could get a place on her own. Right. But I think what's important is that there's no hint of love here. No, no. Yeah. This is, I need protection and you like me. Maybe we could work together. Yeah. She specifically says, I think battle only keeps me on because of your preference for me. I am not what most men would wish for. Do you see how important that makes you in my life? Without you, battle would turn me out of the house and I'd have to work as a free girl. But you come here and you ask me for my for me by my name and you take the finest chamber in the house for our use and always pay in true gold. Do you know what the others here call me? Kenneth's whore. She gave a brief snort of bitter laughter. Once I would have been shamed by that. Now I like the sound of it. Why are you talking? Kenneth's voice cut her musings as harshly as a blunt knife. Do you think I pay to hear you talk? It was a question. She knew she was allowed to answer. No, she replied in a low voice. But I think that with the gold you pay Betel, I could rent a small house for us. I would keep it tidy and clean. It would always be there for you to come home to, and I would always be ready and clean for you. I vowed there would never be the smell of another man upon me. And you think I would like that? He scoffed. I do not know, she said quietly. I know that I would like that. That's all. And he's just like, well, I don't care. Yeah, I don't care what you like. Trying to keep it, again, transactional, impersonal, cold. Right. And I really think, deep down, that he doesn't want to keep it like that. Right. Not that he has true feelings for Etta or anything like that, but just companionship. Right. And not having yeah. to be in control all the time. But in his mind, he's so incredibly stupid and he has to cover up the fact that he's stupid. So he has to be Captain Kennet, potential king of the Pirate Isles. Well, I don't think it's even just that. I think there's also the aspect of if anyone knows any of his shortcomings, they're a threat. There's no way to be sure that she won't, if he lets Etta in, there's no way to be sure that she won't turn around and betray him. Right, yeah. That he cannot trust that even for the niceness of having someone that would be a companion, he cannot trust them. He can't trust anybody enough. And I, I think that's so sad. That's such a hard way to live, to just keep everyone out constantly because you can't trust that you would live otherwise. Right. Very sad. Very sad. But... In hearing that Kenneth doesn't care, Etta kind of starts crying. Yeah. I think more so with the fact that she had put a lot of hope into not needing to be here. And she yeah. does make a good point. If he's going to pay all that gold anyway, he might as well buy a place for her to stay. And then she, he doesn't have to worry about anyone else being with her. And so I don't know. Like, I get it from her point of view of I have a safe place to stay. And from his point of view... Or, like, why, from his point of view, it would be a good deal. And I think she had thought that he would 
react a little bit better than he did. Mm -hmm. And when he doesn't and says, I don't care and doesn't really make a move to make this happen, she is suddenly overcome with grief. Like she's crying. This isn't a good time. And Kenneth gets upset because, you know, like he can't stand seeing her cry and he doesn't want her. He's, she is ruining the mood. This isn't a companionship. He doesn't, he shouldn't have to comfort her. This was not why he bought a whore. He bought a whore to avoid all this. Damn it. He had paid. Which is not how people work. Right. Yeah. (laughs) You don't, you can't just not be human. (laughs) You can just be a robot because somebody paid you to be a robot, I guess. It's, I don't know. There's too many human emotions. And again, right after this, we see another kind of comparison to a boy that I do want to bring up because it goes with our previous conversation. Right. He commands her to lie on her belly face down and he mounted her that way face down like a boy, but he took her as a woman. Let no one, not even a whore say that Kenneth did not know the difference between the two. And again, that really kind of ties into his suppressed nature of of what happened to him with Urgot, first of all. Right. And maybe even his own preferences and what he's trying to cover up as and his own insecurities about that. So it I just wanted to bring it up because it's another important mention in this chapter. Right. Also the fact that he's worried that if he has relations with her in any way other than a normal quote unquote way to have sex with a woman that he will be looked at as gay. Like people will think that he likes men and that he prefers men that way, which I think is so weird. I like there, there's two thoughts to me. It's one could be inner shame because he does prefer men. Right. Or two, it could be, and it could be to avoid any comparison with Urgot. Or any closeness with it because his whole life is dedicated to getting rid of Urgot's name in any sense. Right. So to me, both of those could be equally true. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it's just sad because like a healthy adult relationship can be anything. And if it's between a man and a woman, like it's between a man and a woman, regardless of what happens. (laughs) And so it's, like, really sad that Kenneth is, like, pushing himself to, like, I can only do it in this one way and I can only do this one thing because otherwise it's not right and it's, like, dirty. There's something wrong with it. And I just feel so bad for him. (laughs) I mean, like, obviously it's so hard because Kenneth is a bad person. But, like, I still have so much sympathy for him. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's... A true human. Right. <laughs> He's a broken person, and we see the inner depths of how broken he is through his monologues. Right. And, like, obviously there are problematic ways that he's going about having relationships with Edda. <laughs> However, I think that there is sort of this, like, expectation that comes along with Edda's profession, and I think that, like, that makes it a little bit different than what he does later on because... Yeah. Edda is coming into this as a contract and it seems like she is okay with her job and doing this job in the way that she is. And like, I don't know, it's really hard. It gets into dicey area because like 
in a place like Divi Town, what kind of work would there have been for right. a woman? And like, is she backed into this corner? Right. Like, we don't know any of those, those details, but from what we know of Etta, it seems that she is okay with this situation. She's okay with the arrangement as it is right now. Yeah. And so I think if we take it like that and we talk about it like that, like she's an adult woman and she's making her own choices and sex work is work. So <laughs> she's just doing her job. I think that like it's okay to look at these scenes from that perspective. This isn't, although the way he is <laughs> interacting with her is problematic and strange, it's not necessarily as bad as it seems because it is a contractual thing. Right. So I don't know. It's it's very hard to talk about, especially because we, we do not want to like be too vulgar on this podcast. <laughs> but yeah, we, I mean, we also see... Again, some peeking through of humanity of Kenneth here. Right. Which is like kind of what we're talking about. Yeah, he is a terrible person, but you know, he has self-shame for how things are turning out too. Right. Because he hears the near noiseless weeping of the woman beside him, and that troubles him. The disturbance he felt at it combined with his earlier shame and self-disgust. What was the matter with her? He paid her, didn't he? What right did she have to expect any more than that from him? She was, after all, just a whore. It was the deal they had made. And abruptly he rises and begins pulling on clothes, and he's just trying to get away of his own feelings of shame, of dealing with this so contractually. Yes, yeah. He wants he wants to re-fix the balance so that there isn't any misunderstanding on his end of this being more than just a contract. Mm -hmm. So he says, you know, I have something for you to, and he's trying to get a coin so he can remind her this is transactional. We don't have feelings for each other. This is all this is about. Yeah. And ignoring her pleading to stay. And and I'm sorry. Like I didn't mean to do this. Like, please don't go. I'll be better next time. Yeah. Which is so sad. (laughs) Yeah. And he's like, no, keep the room, stay up here. I'll be back later. But like, this is for you. And he's trying to find that coin to remind her. Right. And he has to tell her to stay in the room because he's realizing he does not have any money on him. Yeah. He's like, fate had betrayed him and there was nothing in his pocket. He left the ship in that much haste. He'd have to go back to the Marietta to get money to pay battle. It was all damnably embarrassing. He knew the whore was looking at him, waiting. What could be more humiliating than to stand penniless before the whore one had already used? But luckily, mm-hmm. he finds an earring in yes. his pocket. It's a ruby. He doesn't even care about rubies, so it's perfect for her. And he tells her to hold the earring, yeah. and he'll be back. Drew forth instead the tiny jeweled earring from the blue kitten's ear. The ruby winked at him. He had never cared for rubies. It would do for Etta. So he wants to go back to the ship, get money, also walk off this black mood, try to fix the relationship between he and Etta, who he paid for, and try to, like, get the power balance back and his mindset correct. Right. And he has to go back to the ship anyways because he obviously forgot his money. It wasn't in his pocket. Yes. And he can't believe he would forget something again. This like goes into his little pity party of like, Oh, I'm so dumb and stupid. And this is the worst, but you know, it's, he's going to try to save face about it. He tells Betel, you know, keep everything the way it, the room and the horror as they are. I'll be back. I want them for the whole night and keeps going. 
And then it says he was well down the street before he felt his purse thudding against his left pocket. Ridiculous. He never kept it there. He thought of going back to and paying battle off right now, but decided against it. He'd only look like a fool if he went back now saying he changed his mind. A fool. The word burned in his mind. And previously in the chapter, we kind of skimmed over it. He was thinking about how stupid he was and he was going to be the laughing stock. But because of that, he would also thought about the charm that he had. And, oh, everyone was going to think that he was so stupid for having that too beating the other island and whatever. No one right. really knows about it, but yeah, that's he, what his spiral had. Yeah. He also was talking about how dumb he was for even paying for it because it hasn't done anything. It hasn't worked since other island. Yeah. But now, once he did that and he's alone walking down the street, it says, that was likely the only bit of treasure ever, ever carried off from the other's island and you gave it to a whore. So he demanded bringing the small face up to his own to stare at it. So perhaps you do have both luck and wisdom, the tiny face smirked at him. Perhaps. What do you mean by that? But the wizard word charm did not speak again that evening, not even when he flicked his forefinger against its face. So the, uh, the charm is ever in Edda's corner. Yes. Throughout all of these books, which is great. And thinks it was wise of him to give that earring to Edda. One, because it does win her over to Kenneth's side. Right. Basically, it's basically saying from her perspective, why would I ever want a whore be waiting on me? Whatever. I pay for you. Don't do anything. And then like, here, here's a little gift I got you. Yeah. Like, (laughs) here's a jewel earring that's really expensive. Like, whatever. (laughs) But yeah, I think that is really interesting that like even from the start, the... Kenneth the Sundeer. Yeah. He, he has some sort of like rallying for Edda. And it does make me wonder because this talisman is supposed to be Kenneth. It's Kenneth's essence. It's Kenneth's likeness. If this shows a little bit deeper of Kenneth's actual feelings, because Kenneth has been trying to stay away from feelings for so long that I wonder if this version of him is the more honest i guess yeah <laughs> and that like there is some love there for Edda. there is some like affection of some type there is i guess some level of respect i don't know i don't know if i'd go that far but you know maybe that's a sign yeah i don't know it's the dead of night and he is in an even worse mood at this point thinking he's worse than useless and he goes to a tattoo parlor not just any tattoo parlor ivro's parlor yes ivro's who is an exceptional artist he is well known for being an amazing artist yes and uh it's the middle of the night he wakes him up and says hey i want a tattoo and ivro is like why should i waste my time take your trade elsewhere to adult with some needles and ash who doesn't give a damn about his work then when you have it burned off the next day, you won't have destroyed anything worth having. I'm an artist, not a whore. Kenneth is exceptionally angry and says, I paid for it and I did what I wanted with it. Understand? And the artist understands and says, okay, fine. I'll give you a tattoo. But Kenneth knows that he's going to make it as painful as possible as well. Right. And he also makes a comment, artists and whores, gold always bought them. An artist was no more than a whore who had been well paid. 
which I think is really interesting. It's just, again, him looking down on other people and like, see, I can buy anything with gold. More cynical. Yeah. Yeah. Which probably is coming from the fact that the artist literally just said, I'm not a whore. You can't buy me. And then (laughs) he does anyway. (laughs) But the artist is setting things up. He's lighting the candles, getting the studio set up and ask Kenneth where and what. Kenneth says the nape of my neck and softly and an other. Another what, Ivro asked testily. He was already drawing up the table beside him. Tiny pots of brilliant inks were arrayed on it in precise rows. He placed a taller stool behind Kenneth's and sat upon it. An other, Kenneth repeated, like from the other island, you know what I mean? I do, Ivro says harshly. It's a bad luck tattoo, and I'm more than happy to drill it into you. And that's what... That's what Kenneth wants. He says earlier, pain and perfection. It was the only path to redemption he knew. And if he ever needed to make a reparation to his luck, it was tonight. So this is something that Kenneth does regularly. He gets a tattoo and then he burns it off the next day. Right. He cleanses the sin from himself. Yeah. Basically. It's like a horrible, horrible cycle that he has got into his head makes that like makes him lucky again that if something goes wrong he has to pay for the sin right and he pays for it by getting a tattoo and the tattooer is like didn't you like them like you paid for them were they i know my work is good i know they looked good i worked hours on them you paid well didn't you like them and kenneth's like yeah i liked them fine but i liked them better burned off and ivro just says you're a madman but his voice was distracted. Kenneth was nothing to him anymore, not a man, not an enemy, only a canvas for his passionate work. The tiny needle drilled in over and over. His skin twitched with pain. He heard Ivro expel a tiny breath of satisfaction. It was the only way, he thought to himself, the only way to expunge the bad luck. Going to the other's island had been a bad decision, and now he had to pay for it. A thousand jabs of the needle and the stinging freshness of the new tattoo for a day. Then the cleansing agony of the hot iron to burn the mistake away and make it as if it had never happened, to keep the good luck strong. Kenneth told himself as he nodded his hands into fists. Behind him, Ivro was humming to himself, enjoying both his work and his revenge. Just a weird quirk of Kenneth's. (laughs) Yeah. And it seems as though he's only ever done this two other times, from what we can tell. At least there are two burn scars on his back. So I guess there could be some other where other yeah, there places. Could be others, but, but yeah. Yeah. So kinda kinda struggling. <laughs> but it's an interesting look into his mind and his how he views relationships and how he views himself, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. And an introduction to Etta and more of Sorcor, which I thought were were very valuable parts because they become big big characters. Right. Yeah. And we get to see the growth between them being Etta being someone who's a little bit has a little bit less agency and a little bit less security in herself and who she is. And obviously growing into a much more confident person who becomes queen of the pirate isles and Sorcor being someone who is kind of adamantly opposed to what Kenneth is trying to do and eventually is swayed to join him in his cause. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So 
definitely an interesting look at Kennet, a hard chapter. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that happens that's really sad and harmful. <laughs> right. It's it is a good look at Kennet as a character. I think it does also make him more sympathetic. But yeah, there's obviously a lot that's going to happen in the future. There's going to be a lot of change, a lot of growth um, from everyone. <laughs> I don't know. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. If you have any thoughts on Kenneth's psyche or his relationships or anything like that, or the book so far or the trilogy as a whole, please let us know. Isfitshappy at gmail.com. We try to read those every once in a while. <laughs> and uh, you can message us directly at, at Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Our handle is isfitshappy on all three of those. Okay, so now we're going to talk a little bit about some stuff that you guys sent in to us for the previous chapters. Um, we'll start first with, uh, we only have two things to talk about today, which is like, crazy low but that's okay we always love talking about stuff the first thing is from an instagram dm from peculiar ponies and they wanted to join in the conversation they're a little bit uh, this is a little bit um further back on the very first episode where we're talking about the, the serpents yep and they made mention that later in the later series when the serpents go from serpent to dragon that one of the dragons m makes a specific mention about how they're disappointed. They turned out blue. And that kind of feeds into their thought that maybe the serpents don't have to be the same color as the dragon that they grow up into or hatch into. Right. So maybe some of the serpents could have turned into other dragons, but they're just not specifically called out and they could be different colors right yeah so i know that a big fan theory thing is to match the colors up with what is mentioned of the serpents and later the dragons and that that's kind of how a lot of people can, like that's another hint that people have of like oh maybe this is this dragon because yeah. they're the same color we have some that are actually confirmed and we talked about that previously as right. well yeah they turn into but like Mulkin and Murkor, but right. But it is a really interesting yeah. thought that the dragon or the, yeah, a dragon said that they were disappointed. They were the same color they were as a serpent, that there was this like, Oh, I'm still blue, which does kind of insinuate that there's a potential to change color. However, we don't know if that's because these dragons are kind of stunted. So they don't have full memories or like right. if there's other things playing into that, there's no way to tell, but I just thought that was a really interesting thought process of what if yeah. they can change more like butterflies. My initial um, thought was that they would stay the same color, but I suppose, yeah. I suppose they could change. We don't really know that much. So I just thought that was a really fun theory. Yeah. It's an and interesting thought. Yeah. A, an interesting thought process <laughs> or like thought exercise that's what i wanted to say <laughs> thank you peculiar ponies for that really interesting insight and then last but not least we have a couple thoughts from amir specifically thoughts on the similarities between efren and verity both how they are very self-sacrificial 
for the greater good in their own ways. They both want to be absorbed by their creations or in Efren's case, not necessarily his creation, but his family's legacy. (laughs) But they were both going to be absorbed by their respective inanimate objects and help out their families in some way. Right. Like it will mean more once they're gone. Yes. Quote, he's obsessed with being consumed and serving his loved ones through death, in my opinion, exactly the same way as Verity, almost expiring and be- being so obsessed with raising as a rising as a dragon and saving his family that he cannot notice Ketrikin. So it's like that one-mindedness of not really caring about the immediate future of the Vestrits or, you know, specific small things like Devad, just kind of single-mindedly focusing on when is Vivacia coming back to port? Right. I need to join this because then everything will be fixed. The yeah. same way that Verity had that singular mindset and not really caring about Ketrikin immediately there. Although there is, you know, some excuse for Verity and it's more of like a magical, like his feelings were all in the dragon already. Right. You know, but it is a similar obsession. I like the parallel there. Yeah, it definitely is a parallel that I hadn't recognized before. I also like the idea that Robin Hobb is talking a little bit about the end of someone's life and what that must feel like. And this idea that when you're nearing the end of life and your loved ones are in danger, what kind of you know, reaction would you have? And if there's magic in this world where you know that you can live on to help them in some way, wouldn't you also be right focused more on what you can do after you're dead? Because at this point it's too late. There's nothing else you can do. And so I think that's like a really interesting way to look at death mm-hmm. and a way to go about writing about people who are so close to death in a world that is different than ours. Yeah. A lot of the things, the themes in these books are focused on legacy in general, especially with like Kenneth. His whole thing is the legacy of once you don't, like once you're not strong physically anymore, right. like how yeah. do you keep going on uh, erasing legacy for, for Urgot, you know, yeah. the legacy and the importance of traitor families and that living on and Ronica's thoughts of tradition and Brashen trying to get over his old legacy and just moving on from things and, and surviving past the end result of a person. Right. No, it definitely is something that is a, heavy theme. <laughs> yeah. And is an interesting way to look at things. I think I personally don't spend a lot of time thinking about my own legacy, so right. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's really interesting to read characters who are so Maybe we will in like 40 years, but Yeah. <laughs> Maybe yeah, that's that's true. Maybe when you're older, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're too young to think about it. But no, it is really interesting to think in those terms and to see that that theme play out. Um, with other characters. So so thank you for pointing out those similarities, Amir. And thank you everyone else who wrote in and all the things that you guys always are talking about on our pages and in our DMs. We're always really interested to hear your thoughts and we can't wait to hear what your thoughts are next week. 